SARS-CoV-2 variants continue to spread, quickly becoming dominant in countries all over the world. Meanwhile, vaccine delivery continues to be slow. South Africa halted distribution of the AstraZeneca vaccine on evidence that it only conferred 10% protection against the variant that has become dominant there. Cases continue to decline in the U.S., down another 30% over the past two weeks. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. This was President Biden last week in an important speech laying out the focus for his administration's foreign policy. From the pandemic to the climate crisis to nuclear proliferation, challenging the will only to be solved by nations working together and in common. We can't do it alone. We must start with diplomacy, rooted in America's most cherished democratic values. First, isn't it amazing to hear a president talk about working with others to solve our biggest crises rather than against them? The speech laid out an ambitious approach to rethinking American foreign policy rooted in diplomacy, mutual cooperation, and multilateralism. To be sure, there was a time when that was rather commonplace. And yet, in too many moments of shame for our country, whether the war in Vietnam, the war in Iraq, or endless drone war in countries all over the world, we've broken from that tradition and killed hundreds of thousands of people. The U.S. has a long history of leadership when it comes to pandemics. Again, there was a time when our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were the unquestioned global authority on public health, the model that every other country worked to emulate. And this was a bipartisan consensus. If we wait for a pandemic to appear, it will be too late to prepare. And one day, many lives could be needlessly lost because we failed to act today. It was, in fact, George W. Bush who first decided to build out a pandemic prevention plan after reading The Great Influenza by John Barry, who will be our guest on this pod in a couple of weeks. President Bush also kicked off PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief in 2003, a program which spent $80 billion across over 50 countries and is credited with having saved over 17 million lives by getting much-needed HIV testing, treatment, and prophylaxis to communities that needed them. Though the program was not without its bumps, at the beginning it required some proportion of the prevention budget to be spent on abstinence-only education, which has zero evidence supporting that it works, and yet, the program stands up as a testament of what's possible when the U.S. leads on public health. Similarly, the U.S.'s efforts were critical to stopping the Ebola epidemic in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone during the Obama administration. American leadership has been critical to take on serious global health catastrophes, but we've been all but missing when it comes to COVID-19. Not only have we failed to keep our house in order, as we account for five times as many deaths per person to COVID-19 as the global average, but we all but failed to support the global response. Under the Trump administration, our foreign policy was, after all, characterized by America First, a slogan popularized by people like Charles Lindbergh, Nazi sympathizers who wanted to keep America out of World War II. Thankfully, President Biden has already reversed our exit from the World Health Organization, which was slated for July. But if we're serious about being leaders in the fight for COVID-19, it's going to take a lot more than that. And that should start with vaccines. Look, I know we're struggling to get Americans vaccinated right now, so hear me out. President Biden has already committed to buying enough vaccine from Pfizer and Moderna to fully immunize almost every eligible person in the entire country. But the pace is the issue. And much of that is because of bottlenecks in deployment and limitations in production. But President Biden has already committed to using the Defense Production Act to speed up production. The question is, to what scale? Estimates suggest that we'll produce enough vaccine to vaccinate 2.1 billion people by the end of 2021. But why stop there? What about the other 6.4 billion? When our country's full productive capacity has been counted on in times of need, it is more than delivered. That's why we need to pull out all the stops and commit to producing enough vaccine for the entire world. 
James Krellenstein, Peter Staley, and Wafat al-Sadr made this argument in the New York Times a few weeks back, and I agree with them. If we really wanted to lead, we would have decided that in this unprecedented crisis, America would vaccinate the entire world. First, it's the right thing to do to do what we can to save others, no matter whether they're here in the United States or abroad. And the lives that we'll save will probably be our own. Why? Because right now, the biggest threat we have when it comes to COVID-19 are the variants that are popping up with increasing degrees of resistance. And every single susceptible person, not just in America, but all over the world, is a vector where a virus could make the next mutation. So it's in our best interest here at home to make sure everyone abroad is vaccinated too. Today, we're joined by Brian Boitler, Crooked's editor-in-chief who's been tracking President Biden's first 100 days in office for season two of his podcast, Rubicon. If you haven't been listening, you'll want to after our discussion. After the break. My guest today is Brian Boitler. He is Crooked's editor-in-chief and also a host of the Rubicon podcast in its second season, focusing on the first 100 days of the Biden administration. Brian, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. So I got to ask you, these 100 days, stepping back, when and where did we decide that 100 days was the, the, the way we needed to judge whether or not an administration had got off to the start we wanted it? Uh, we trace it back to the FDR presidency, FDR's first term, I should say, uh, where he inherited, like Joe Biden has inherited, a, a series of globally historic crises and had to act very quickly. FDR himself didn't use that term a great deal, but because of how active his administration was in its first hundred days, that term became a sort of standard that future presidents and also future media gatekeepers used to evaluate the progress of, of subsequent administrations. Okay. And, you know, th there are many, many challenges that this administration is facing coming into the first 100 days. It's not just the pandemic, and it's not just the economic consequences of the pandemic, but it's also the fact that there is a mess of challenges to clean up when it comes to foreign policy and our country's positionality and standing in the world. It's climate change. It's the brokenness of the inside of government following four years of uh, an administration who care less about the, the care and feeding of the bureaucracy. How do you think about building a team to take on not just this pandemic, but the pandemic in the context of all of the other challenges uh, that we face? So, you know, restoring global faith in American leadership is very is a very complicated problem because beyond just performing well, right, uh, the Biden administration has to persuade allies, other governments that uh, um, that the United States isn't just going to swing back and forth between untrustworthy regimes, incompetent regimes, and regimes that uh, that take governing seriously, take democracy seriously, and know what they're doing. So that's a really big uh, challenge that is almost entirely apart from just executing well on controlling the pandemic. I, th I think that for them, to a large extent, it's been a process of reassembling a team of people who have ex experienced addressing major interagency challenges, including pandemics. The president himself, many members of his team, spent eight years running the government in a fairly competent administration, and they were only out of power for four years. So putting the band back together in some sense, isn't as hard uh, as it otherwise might have been. 
his chief of staff is is Ron Klain, and I I think this is Ron's third global public health emergency. Obviously, it's the the worst one, but a big part of it is just that these are pe- members of a community that takes governing seriously and learns from experience. Separately, I think the Biden administration has sort of benefited uh, from the fact that the pandemic is a year old and it has been addressed with a varying degree of success by other governments. So inheriting one of the worst responses uh, sets a very low floor, for, low bar for him to clear. And then he has a, a large menu of options to pick from to improve things that have been tested elsewhere. I, I'm wondering how much do you feel like is the right amount of balancing bringing the band back together and selecting for past experience versus bringing in new thinking. How has this administration tried to do that? Because on the one hand, you know, you look at this administration and they're older than the previous Obama administration by about 10 years, uh, which is mainly because they've just aged 10 years, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> yep. versus, versus, you know, the, the need to to build out a bench and to bring in a group of people who may look at this differently because they have not come in with the baggage of this is how it's always been. Uh, and we just have to tidy up after this Trump administration and we'll be good to go. Um, how do you feel like they've tried to balance that? And, and what do you think is the the right balance to be able to take on an unprecedented set of challenges? I, so I think that their, their North Star in all this is if they don't competently address the crisis they're going to they're going to suffer politically and the country's going to suffer and uh, you know the outgoing administration will try to base its comeback on the new administration's failures so i, I and i think that that has been a, a the insight driving many many decisions that the new administration has made uh, so i think after watching trump screw this up for a year the biden administration understandably has placed a premium on experience over new thinking i i don't I don't think it's possible to deny that. But I also don't think that means that the new brain trust includes um, zero people with different forms of expertise. So, you know, by that, I don't mean that uh, they've pulled very heavily from the young ascendant progressive wing of, say, the House caucus to to run the show. But a big part of the challenge Biden faces is untangling a bunch of logistical messes, right? And so, so his coordinator for the vaccine rollout and other aspects of the pandemic response is Jeff Zients, who's not a new character. Uh, he's best known in government for salvaging the healthcare.gov rollout, um, which was a, a fiasco. <laughs> um, and obviously, these are problems of a different kind and scale. It, it's clear to the Biden team that they face logistical challenges that are surely much more complicated after a year of failure than they might have been if the past administration hadn't messed things up so badly. And so I think that's where you'll find a lot of the innovative thinking, apart from the public health insights uh, that the administration will bring to bear, most of which I imagine will be, you know, not new in any sense, you know, uh, the, the product of years and years and years and years of study. What is also interesting is rather than select a physician or a public health practitioner as HHS secretary, they went with uh, someone whose background is in the law and maybe tipping their hand in into what they feel like the biggest threats uh, facing American healthcare may actually be after four years of Trump trying to dismantle uh, the Affordable Care Act. What does um, the choice of Javier Becerra to lead in the midst of this pandemic tell you about the way that the administration is thinking both in the short term about taking on this pandemic and then the long term rebuilding uh, following the pandemic? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess the way I see it is that the um, I see that the the pandemic response is as being centered 
very much out of the White House. And I haven't seen much indication that the HHS leadership per se is where Biden uh, is going for his like frontline response uh, answers just directly. And that the choice of Becerra reflects a sort of different set of challenges that I think the administration anticipates it will face in trying to shore up uh, the Affordable Care Act, in trying to build on it, also in in trying to deal with like sort of intra-democratic disagreements over the direction of healthcare policy. Becerra comes from the progressive wing as a supporter of Medicare for all. Biden himself is not. And that's been a source of tension between him and, and different factions of the party. And Becerra can be a peacemaker in that regard, I think. That's sort of how I have interpreted the Becerra um, nomination. But I guess it sort of remains to be seen how big of a role he'll play once he's situated and, uh, and I, you know, who knows what phase of the vaccine rollout will be in at that point. Um, but it's possible that my assessment of this could be totally off. Mm. You know, it's, it's interesting, right? Because he's not someone who does not know healthcare uh, per se. He, he led a lot of the most fervent defenses of the ACA from the California Attorney General's office. But it's also interesting, right? Because it, in some respects, it cleaves health from healthcare, right? And it basically says these are two different challenges. One is a problem of public health and public health infrastructure, of course, which the HHS secretary has some bearing on. But the other is an issue of health care. And we kind of want to do both. We'll uh, put the public health issue out of the White House and out of the CDC, which of course falls under HHS, but is sort of seen as an independent agency. Uh, and then health care is where uh, we hope that HHS will lead. And it's a, it's sort of an interesting bifurcation of two things that I think the public tends to tends to think of as as the same. You know, I, I hate to be uh, Rumsfeldian here, but <laughs> there are unknowns and then there are unknown unknowns. And if you take uh, the White House in the reins of American government after Donald Trump, you know, Michael Lewis wrote a whole book about the unknown unknowns. And in some respects, one of the jobs that the incoming administration is going to have to face is trying to find the unknown unknowns that are not working after four years of Trump and trying to address them. Do you know how they've thought about this and, you know, in what ways they've tried to operationalize this in the administration? Yeah, it's a good question. And I can't say no all the ways. Uh, but for instance, on the economic front, um, Biden has asked Congress to place coronavirus relief on autopilot um, by enacting what are known among wonks as automatic stabilizers, right? So they scale up benefits if and when unemployment climbs and scale down uh, automatically as the economy improves. And I think that that's good policy under, under any circumstances, but particularly in a climate of uncertainty, of unknown unknowns. You know, we don't know right now whether the world is going to crush COVID with the help of these new vaccines once and for all or whether we're going to face sort of cyclical shutdowns as the virus evolves and escapes the reach of vaccines. And if you don't know the answer to that, you don't want your economic response to COVID to entail having to go back to Congress over and over and beg hat in hand for new money. So they're saying, let's not take a gamble on these vaccines being a, a permanent fix for COVID. And let's pass an economic relief that will we'll automatically turn back on if six months, eight months, a year from now, the country has to shut down economic activity to uh, to reduce the spread of a new variant of, of COVID. And I assume that that kind of thinking is evident elsewhere in their response. Um, but I, you know, uh, there, there's a lot going on behind behind the scenes that's invisible to us at this point. 
Mm. I think, you know, the, the point that you make is a really good one. The other thing that is just sort of happening is like COVID-19 has been a bit of a stress test for the government. Mm-hmm. And so if it's broken, you're probably going to figure it out just because uh, we're not in a in a usual scenario. And that's, you know, generally bad news in terms of a, a pandemic exploiting the brokenness of government. But it's good news in finding it out and making sure that you can fix it. And um, and in some respects, right, like, I mean, we're so dominated by COVID that I, I worry sometimes that this administration is probably going to be spending a lot more time cleaning up after COVID uh, of the four years that they're here. And there are going to be a lot of challenges that have not been tended to. And I want to ask you, you know, how might the pandemic be overshadowing some of the other bigger picture challenges uh, this administration can face that may manifest in the long term? Yeah. Uh, in a weird way, I, I think that the success is the is the big risk here, right? If you imagine Biden ignoring the pandemic and focusing only on those other challenges or on attaining his other policy goals, then what would happen is, you know, mass death would continue, the economy would collapse, and his administration would fail terribly, right? Um, I think it's the flip side where Biden turns things around on COVID and is rewarded politically for it, where other crises, particularly I'm thinking here of the crisis of democracy, might fall by the wayside, where if it's two years from now, we're coming up on um, midterm elections. Joe Biden is very popular because he's managed to save the country from coronavirus. Democrats are rewarded uh, with a good election result. You can imagine that putting downward pressure on the party to address some of the uh, systemic anti-democratic features of our system because they think, well, politics took care of the problem for us and we don't need to pass new laws to make sure that people can vote and to make sure that representatives don't pick their voters rather than the other way around. And it's in that climate of sort of the afterglow of having uh, successfully uh, defeated coronavirus that I worry that uh, the administration will sort of sideline some of the other concerns that feel very immediate in the wake of Trump, but that might not feel so immediate uh, a year or two down the line, particularly if things have gone well. I think that that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, you know, it's interesting, right? Because so much of what um, what the past dogma among Democrats has been is that good policy is good politics, and um, you know you've you've had this conversation on your pod about the interplay between policy and politics, uh, and the notion that it may just be that good politics is just good policy, right? And that you've got to be able to deliver big wins that are clearly tied to the administration and that have immediate outcomes from the moment that they're passed. You know, I wonder, in some respects, the biggest win of all um, that Democrats are looking at politically is that Joe Biden got elected, right? That That's it. Like, ding dong, the witch is dead, right? The, the, Donald Trump is gone, and, and, and folks don't have to worry about him, uh, at least in the short term, uh, any longer. How much do you think um, the bounce of that, right, will um, potentially interfere with a focus on the actual work from the Biden administration and uh, potentially deliver, you know, I think, I guess, oversized political wins for the policy benefits that are actually extracted. Uh, I'm trying to to make sure I understand your question correctly, that you worry that if uh, that because defeating Trump was such a important goal for Biden and the people who voted for him, that having done it, that they might tune out a little bit in a way that, you know, sort of happened after uh, Barack Obama took over from George W. Bush and and that uh, the import of what he does will be lost in that? In, in some respects. I guess the question that I'm really uh, trying to get at is, 
it's possible that just because the Biden administration won, that a lot of the things that we're doing in the short term that are sort of obvious things to be doing, and you know, all credit to the administration for doing them, that those are getting oversized um, political accolades for what they actually are achieving in the short term. And I, you know, it, one one very um, clear example of this is a lot of the work that's being done by executive order. And mm-hmm. obviously, right, like this is a challenging moment. We barely hold on to the Senate. Um, but we, we've we seen the consequences of governing by executive orders, that it can very quickly be uh, undone by executive order. Mm-hmm. And th- there is all kinds of celebration about these executive orders. And I think a lot of that is just because uh, they're undoing so many of the evils of the Trump administration. And I just worry that maybe the weight that we're putting on this moment, because Biden is now president and Trump is not, may leave us not governing for the long term in ways that have clear policy detriments. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so a few a few thoughts. One is that Biden hasn't exhausted uh, his executive power yet. There are people who are annoyed by that. They're like, why hasn't Joe Biden forgiven student loan debt? I don't know if and when he's going to do that. Uh, he has suggested that he will. But that's something that he might deploy after this sort of celebratory period post-Trump where everyone's feeling very relieved that he's gone and that Biden is, you know, getting to work very quickly on doing some of that damage uh, that, that he could use to sort of sort of regain political capital with that group of voters six months, a year from now. Another thing I would say is that part of the reason Biden is finding it easy to undo a lot of what Trump did isn't just that Trump did it by executive order, but that he just did it very lazily. Um, yeah. I believe that Biden's team of advisors and lawyers isn't going to uh, satisfy themselves with signing an executive order saying, you know, uh, it's the goal of the government to do X, Y, Z. That will trans, uh, translate into a whole raft of rulemaking and and other forms of policymaking that are harder to dislodge by an incoming administration. And thirdly, the sort of part that remains to be seen is that it's not lost on the Biden team, for sure, that they are going to need a fairly robust legislative component to their agenda, uh, both to make sure that the country is in good shape, um, to make sure that Biden's political interests are best served, and to make sure that whatever happens in four years or eight years, that there's a legacy there to preserve. That's obviously a huge question with such a closely divided Senate. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to confidently predict that they're going to get huge returns out of Congress. Uh, given how closely divided it is. But I don't think that this story begins and ends with this series of few dozen executive actions that Biden has taken. They're going to parlay that into more. Mm -hmm. On that front, all roads for legislation lead through West Virginia. And, um, you know, getting Joe Manchin on board uh, takes outsized uh, influence over the legislative agenda that, that Biden can pass. And I, I'm wondering, um, how does, you know, West Virginia, which is a very unique state that's been hit very hard by uh, a series of challenges, whether it's the opioid crisis or uh, the offshoring and automation of jobs, um, how is that factoring into the way that the the economic response uh, in particular, but also the public health response to COVID-19 has taken shape? So um, I think they're still trying to figure out what to do about the Joe Manchin problem. Uh, before before the inauguration, I believe, uh, Democratic leaders in Congress uh, were talking about bringing earmarks back, something that has been absent from the legislative process for about a decade and that has made it harder to legislate because it's harder to entice 
reluctant members to break with their party if there's not a direct stake for their district or their state in in what Congress is uh, passing. That's something that could obviously be used to help entice somebody like Joe Manchin to vote with the party as opposed to against the party. Uh, that's, you know, that's talking about carrots on, on the stick side of things. Vice President Harris did some local media around COVID relief uh, in West Virginia, and Ma- Manchin seemed to respond pretty poorly to having sort of uh, been pressured by the White House publicly in that way. But one thing I heard from Manchin himself gave me some hope, at least, that uh, the Democratic leadership in Congress and in the White House and has has reached him in a productive way. He was dodging some questions uh, about whether he'd support this or that, but his dodge was, I'm going to do what I can to make Joe Biden a successful president. Mm-hmm. That's that's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close to exact. Whatever that means in practice for um, Joe Manchin and what he will or will not vote for, I think it suggests that Democrats have had some success aligning Manchin's uh, incentives or his view of his own incentives with theirs. Like if if Manchin thinks that um, if if he thinks that the way for me to win is to prove my independence by screwing over my party at every turn, that's bad and it's going to create a mess. Things aren't going to pass. You know, the coronavirus response will be too weak. The whole party will suffer as a result and so will the country. Um, if Manchin realizes more correctly that Biden's success is his success and he will lose very badly if Biden presides over a failed response, uh, then he might provide Biden the votes he needs to be successful. Um, again, it remains to be seen. Like there has not been a, a super critical vote in con- in this new Congress yet, and uh, and we don't know how hard or easy it will be for uh, for Democrats to get bu- to get Mansion to go along with them. But I took that to be a positive omen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As you've been covering these first one hundred days, you yourself have been dealing with some COVID related challenges. Um, how has that impacted the way that you're thinking about this work? and the way that what government does shapes uh, our daily lives. Yeah. Um, so uh, to give your listeners a little background on this, uh, my wife and I came down with what we now believe was mild to moderate COVID back in early March uh, when there was just no testing, at least in Washington, D.C. So we, we couldn't confirm a diagnosis. The closest direct evidence uh, for it was uh, from antibody testing that we got a few months later. Um, uh, but after a month or so of pneumonia, I never regained my ability to do steady state exercise. Mm. Um, and, and only in actually in, in the last couple of days, uh, my doctors concluded that the culprit is clotting, which is something COVID-19 is believed to cause. Um, so that's uh, <laughs> creates some uncertainty about the the future, but it, over the over the months, it's obviously been unpleasant physically and psychologically, but it's been a useful daily reminder um, that even if you rigorously cover the mortality numbers and the hospitalizations, and you maintain like a healthy level of of outrage and urgency about that, that still significantly undercounts the amount of harm the virus has done uh, and will continue to do. And the only way to arrest that is with a mix of good luck and with competence. So uh, as relieved as we might be that the the last team is out and that people like Dr. Atlas are no longer in charge (laughs) of COVID and responding to it by trying to get as many people sick as possible, we also shouldn't be complacent or hold 
uh, Biden himself to like a less than exacting standard Mm -hmm. Um, because governing failures, even if they are the product of good faith human error, can still cause tons of damage. Um, and, And that will be true even if that damage is invisible in the statistics. Ryan, I, I really, um, I hope uh, that you begin to feel better, and I'm sorry about your experience. And it's an important reminder about just how important governing is. I think sometimes we pay a lot of attention to the politics, and increasingly, you know, politics in 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 the past was covered as sport. Now it's almost covered as reality TV. Um, but you know, when it goes wrong uh, and it delivers results that do not that do not match with the seriousness of the challenges that play, you know, people suffer. And we've seen that in, in profound ways and in, 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 in less profound ways and ways that we don't count. Um, and I really appreciate that, that reminder of just, of just what's at stake here. Uh, and we're all hoping and praying for uh, a great 100 days and, um, and a continued application of sincere efforts um, and competence to a really, really big set of problems. And we appreciate you coming on uh, to help us to better understand that. And that was Brian Boitler. He is uh, Crooked Media's editor-in-chief and host of the Rubicon podcast. You can check it out uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, take a listen. It's been really insightful uh, about the various challenges that the administration faces and the ways that they're taking that on. Brian, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks, Abdul. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. The various COVID-19 variants, including B117 from the UK, B1351 from South Africa, and P1 from Brazil, are popping up all over the country suggesting that they are spreading quickly. The CDC has already predicted that B117 would be the dominant strain in the U.S. by next month, and recent research suggests that it may be faster than that. This puts added pressure on vaccine deployment, but it also forces us to consider how we deal with the ongoing potential for COVID-19 evolution. One approach is genomic surveillance. This means not simply checking people for COVID-19, but regularly looking into the genetic sequence of COVID-19 samples that we find to track the spread of these variants and keep an eye out for more. The UK has been a global leader in this, sequencing the genomes of 8% of all cases. In the US, we've only been sequencing around 1%. The American Rescue Plan, President Biden's COVID-19 relief package, includes about $50 billion for this, which is good news. That's it for our show this week. Next week, we'll have Dr. Angie Rasmussen, a virologist, back on the show to tell us a bit more about the variants and what we need to do to stop them. And don't forget, we've still got America Dissected swag. Our science always wins hats are sold out, but we still got a few more of our sweatshirts and t-shirts. They're going quick, so make sure to grab one before they're gone. Crooked.com slash store. And I hope I get to see you all at The Incision, incision incision.substack.com. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 